Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing long COVID with Dr. Igo Ofotokun, a principal investigator of the Recover Study funded by NIH, and Dr. Alba Azola, assistant professor and co-director of the Johns Hopkins Post-Acute COVID-19 team. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's begin by talking about what we mean by long COVID. What are some of the most common symptoms experienced by those who are considered to have long COVID? Dr. Azola, do you want to take this one? It's, it's a complex one, even though it seems simple, as long COVID is the term that was created by patients early in the pandemic that started to notice lingering symptoms. But there are several different presentations. So some patients will present with palpitations upon standing, sweating, difficulty with digestion, more of the autonomic dysfunction symptoms, even temperature regulation. Some other patients will present with more of a chronic fatigue picture where they have exhaustion. It's beyond fatigue when they're unable to even do their activities of daily living and, and live life as they knew it because of the symptoms that are exacerbated by activity and have severe activity intolerance. And we also have other patients that have more of a neurologic picture where they can experience a neuropathic pain. It can be either small fiber neuropathies or demyelinating neuropathies. And we have also like the, the, the long COVID that are survivors of the ICU, so post-ICU syndrome picture patients. And all of these can have a little bit of a flavor of each other. <laughs> so we can have the uh, the post-ICU patient with the dysautonomia and uh, the neurologic with the chronic fatigue and the pain. And so it it can be quite a a daunting patient population when you first start seeing them. That definitely is an all-encompassing term when we use the term long COVID, but it's certainly not one clinical presentation. If I may add to that, I agree with Dr. Zola and the Symptoms of long COVID can affect almost every organ in the body. The way we are now trying to aggregate it together, it seems like there are specific unique phenotypes or syndrome in which all of these symptoms can be grouped. So you have those people who present with predominantly neurologic conditions and dysfunction. There are other groups of long COVID patients that have predominantly sleep disorders. And then there's another group that have autonomic dysfunction. They have just autonomic imbalance. And then there's a fourth group that deals with cardiopulmonary exercise intolerance and fatigue. And so the broad range of symptoms that people present with sometimes fall within these uh, four different phenotypes. And are there specific populations that seem to be the most susceptible to long COVID symptoms? And it's a part of what we're still trying to figure out. But if you go by what we knew about the acute COVID infection, we knew there were a group of people that were more vulnerable to, I mean, everybody is susceptible to COVID infection, but once you get it, there were a group of individuals that were more susceptible to severe form of uh, the condition. 
And one of those are those people with a comorbid condition. And that seems to be the case with long COVID. So comorbid conditions include hypertension, lung disease, diabetes, previous history of immune compromised condition. But in addition to that, some of the things we're beginning to see in some of the research that are emerging is that people that have repeated COVID infections, regardless of the severity. So if you've had your first episode, your second and the third, they tend to add to each other. So people with more episodes of COVID infection tend to have more severe long COVID symptoms if they develop a long COVID. The second group of people that we're beginning to see actually present with long COVID symptoms are people that have really severe long, acute long COVID disease. So for example, if people are severe enough to be hospitalized, their risk of long COVID is higher. If then among those people that are hospitalized, if, if your condition is severe enough to be in ICU, then you also have, you tend to have a higher risk of uh, developing long COVID compared to people who were not hospitalized who have milder form of uh, the disease. The fourth category, it's people who during the acute infection have high viral load. So if you have really high, so the burden of the virus, if you know the amount of the virus in the body is significantly high during the acute infection, it also predicts whether people will develop long COVID down the road. The other groups are people that have what we call co-infections. So people that have EBV infection that reactivate, CMV infection that reactivate seems to be at increased risk. And the third group is during the acute episode, people who develop autoantibodies. So circulating autoantibodies, especially those that are associated with some of the common autoimmune diseases like lupus, they also have the increased risk of uh, developing a uh, long COVID. So we are learning more about this condition. And so these are some of the things that are emerging from some of the studies that are coming out recently about this uh, condition. I really love that study. <laughs> it was very eye-opening. It definitely helped understand the potential impact of, for example, Paxlovid mm. in early disease and, and intervention to decrease viral load and things like that. There's other, also other studies. So that study particularly looked at hospitalized patients. The majority were hospitalized. Mm -hmm. There's some data from the UK on, on risk factors for those patients that were not hospitalized. Their data showed that female sex was a risk factor, mm -hmm. ethnic minority, socioeconomic mm -hmm. deprivation, smoking, obesity, and there was an increased gradient of long COVID risk with decreased age. So these people were younger on the younger side. You know, it's interesting since these are two populations that, you know, in the clinical interventions, I see, I tend to see both. And I've been seeing more of the non-hospitalized as we get better at treating acute COVID and keeping those people out of the ICU. So Amanda, one other thing that I want to add to that is some of the questions that often come up. It's, we mentioned one of them is one infection versus multiple infection. So more infection, the higher your risk. The second question is whether if you're fully vaccinated, does it protect you against uh, developing long COVID? The short answer to that is that it offers some level of protection but it does not completely protect you from developing long COVID completely. And then the, the third question that comes up is, 
whether if you had your COVID infection earlier during the time of Delta versus this newer variant, Omicron. Again, the, and the short answer to that from all the studies that we've seen so far, some, some of them from the US, some from the UK, is that the less severe your disease, your initial acute infection, the, more, the, the less the likelihood you will develop uh, long COVID. So since the Omicron variant usually is associated with less severe disease, the risk of a long COVID is not completely zero, but it's much less than the more severe Delta or the original Wuhan virus that we started the pandemic with. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Flachwayo Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network forward slash COVID Health Equity Resources. If I could follow up on the vaccination question, do boosters offer increasing protection above just the primary series of vaccine for long COVID? There's actually research looking into the effect of vaccination and long COVID very early in the pandemic. Once the vaccine first came out, there was a lot of reports of patients with long COVID reporting improvement of symptoms. My understanding is that hasn't panned out completely. <laughs> I know that Dr. Aikiko Iwasaki is looking into this at Yale, looking at the effects of the vaccine on long COVID. But this is my spiel for my patients. The risk of worsening long COVID with reinfection is high. The vaccine definitely offers protection against that. Whether it's going to help or make those symptoms better than they are at baseline, I don't know, but they can definitely protect them from getting worse after a reinfection. So um, Amanda, one way to look at this question, we don't, we don't have complete data yet, whether booster is gonna reduce the risk of long COVID. But what we can say based on what we know so far is that the less severe your episode of long COVID is, the less likelihood you, I mean, the episode of acute COVID infection is, the less the likelihood of developing long COVID. So we can extrapolate that if you have one, a boosted, a booster, your risk of getting infection is reduced. And if you get an infection, if you get reinfected, your risk of having severe infection is reduced. Therefore, you can extrapolate that having vaccine protection either through your primary vaccination booster or booster booster, mm -hmm. you know, would have an additional uh, protection. So we can only speculate on that based on what we know so far. And where should individuals who are experiencing long COVID symptoms turn for help? Go to Dr. Zola. <laughs> I've had this question before, and I, I, this is a large group of patients, and there have been several long COVID clinics, mostly in academic centers, emerging to try to, to help these patients. But the first place that a patient experiencing long COVID needs to go to is their primary care. The primary care can take a lot of steps in terms of basic workup, 
to rule out other etiologies that could be contributing to the, to the fatigue that they're experiencing or non-pharmacologic interventions that they can start with them. And, and some of these patients, that's, that's what they need. And in some cases, require more pharmacologic treatment and more involved care. So I think that that is important to know that the primary care providers should be informed, should be educated on what we have learned over the past two and a half years. And we cannot do it. The post-COVID clinics cannot do it by themselves. Currently, we don't have a way of diagnosing long COVID. There's no one test. If you go to the hospital, that we have that can diagnose long COVID. So long COVID is a diagnosis of exclusion. So if you have had COVID and you then have symptoms after you have COVID or your symptom persists beyond the primary acute episode, one of the first thing you need to go do is go to your primary care provider to figure out exactly what is going on. They have to look at a number of other things, rule out other conditions, before you make this presumptive diagnosis of long COVID. So that is why it's important that the first place to start this experience is uh, to go to your primary care providers who then looks at the entire medical picture and then exclude a number of other things that could look like long COVID and then make a diagnosis. Once a diagnosis has been made, the value of this long COVID clinic that are now emerging becomes important because these are people like Dr. Zola who see a large number of these patients and they are able to classify them into the different phenotypes that there are. And we don't have any treatment currently for long COVID, but at least we can provide symptomatic treatment. Somebody has sleep disorder, you can refer them to get treated for sleep disorder. If people have autonomic dysfunction, there are medication to at least mitigate the symptoms of autonomic uh, dysfunction on and on and on and on. The third pitch I want to make is that there are several ongoing studies that are now active to understand uh, this phenomenon. The one that many of us IDSA members are involved in is the RECOVER effort that is funded by the NIH. So RECOVER stands for researching COVID to enhance recovery. We want you to volunteer for, for study. Refer your patient to volunteer in these studies so that we can figure out exactly what is going on with long COVID. So since you just mentioned the RECOVER study, and I know you've talked about some of the other important recent studies, is there more that you can tell us about current research efforts around long COVID? Yes, so there's a lot of interest in trying to understand long COVID. The most important one is because of, first of all, it's a very devastating condition for some people. Two, the, the sheer volume of people that, will, that are affected. So remember, as out of today, there are close to 100 million people, 95 million that are affected by, that have been infected by the virus. Even if a small fraction of that has long COVID, that will still be millions and millions of people that are affected in the United States. And then when you talk about the entire world, so this is a big issue. And so there are interests, both by the NIH, the CDC, the WHO, even the private sector, to really understand this particular new condition. And so the effort of the NIH is funded mostly through the RECOVER initiative. It's a congressional mandated initiative. 
So it started out as a cohort study. It's a large cohort study that will recruit close to 40,000 people across the United States. It involves adult, children, pregnant women. There are almost 35 different universities that are part of the Recover. And within that 35 institution, there are over 100 sites across the country. So one of the things that Recover is trying to do is to determine the burden of long COVID. How many people that have COVID infection develop long COVID? Which group of people are affected? Is it women or men, minority? What are the uh, risk factors for, for long COVID? And then the third question that is trying to discover is that what is the trajectory of recovery? Do people get long COVID, recover from long COVID? If they do, how long does it take for them to recover? And then the fourth is the mechanism. What is the biology of long COVID? If we understand the mechanism, then we can come up with ways to treat it. And then the next phase of recover is actually clinical trials. So from some of the studies that people are already be doing, it's beginning to appear that we understand some of the causes of long COVID. So there are some people who think that long COVID is as a result of persistence of the virus. So the COVID virus does not completely clear, it's hiding in some sanctuaries such as we see with HIV. And it is this persistence that is causing long COVID. So there's a trial. Now Recover is trying to initiate a clinical trial to address that. There are others who think it's because of inflammation. So during acute COVID, you have this massive cytokine storm, extensive inflammation that for some people, this inflammation doesn't completely resolve and it persists and it is always driving this. So a lot of this information now is guiding the development of intervention to treat this condition. So there's both the NIH effort, there's also the private effort uh, to develop, uh, uh, to understand this condition and to develop treatment. And what I would say to people is that we're looking for people that have COVID, we're looking for control, people that do not have COVID to participate in this study. It's even becoming harder to recruit control because almost everybody uh, have developed uh, COVID. So I will really put a plug for our members in IDSA to really refer participants to these studies. I wanted to, to plug physiatry to the IDSA <laughs> and our role in patients with long COVID at the moment, it is, there's no one test, there's no one medication again, but there's a lot of impact to function. There's a lot of impairments that may be physical, uh, cognitive, impairments that can be really debilitating for patients. The role of physiatry is to work in multidisciplinary teams to look at the patient from a standpoint of function. So as part of the Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, we have been working and publishing how to manage different symptoms like breathlessness, cardiovascular issues, dysautonomia, pediatrics, cognitive so we have uh, created a group of 45 different long COVID clinics around the, the United States and are putting out this, this uh, manuscripts on guidance, how we have been managing these patients, what type of workup is useful. So I've been active on that side of clinician education. And one last question for the both of you. 
What more should healthcare systems and governments around the world be doing to better understand and better address the causes and management of long COVID? An easy one to finish with. I think we need to do as a government, they need to do a better job of educating the public regarding long COVID. There's so much misinformation out there. There's so much confusion and everybody's getting information from different sources. I think we should, there's a role for for the government to be a resource for vetted information that can be helpful for the community. Also education of, of physicians and education of clinicians should be another priority, which has been a little bit delayed in terms of compared to, you know, the, the cohort studies and looking at what the nature of, of long COVID is, which is definitely getting a lot of idea. You know, there's patients suffering now and patients that are debilitated now. So it's important to also provide some funding for that education to be widespread. We are the government of the United States and private sectors across a different spectrum are investing a lot in understanding this uh, phenomenon. For example, Recover is a $1.1 billion effort by the federal government. We're gonna come up with some answers. And what I really want the government to do is to develop infrastructure for long COVID care. So we need to be proactive, proactive preparation to deploy these interventions therapeutics, best practices as they emerge from the ongoing public and private research efforts that needs to be put in place. So we need to identify, like Dr. Zola mentioned, and disseminate existing best practices to facilitate coordinated care. So if you look at all the different long COVID clinics are doing different things, we need to warehouse all of these best practices and put them in a place where it is readily available so that we have a standardized care across the country. We also need to pay attention to reducing disparity and improving access to care for difficult to reach and underserved population. These are the population that are really most impacted by COVID. So as we come up with this new intervention, we need to be intentional in getting this, this intervention to those populations. And then lastly, just to echo again, Dr. Zola, is to develop a workforce training program for healthcare providers caring for long COVID patients. So this is a new condition. Two years ago, 2019, we didn't have COVID or long COVID. So nobody is an expert at this stage. So we need to create a very thought through integrated education program to educate our patient population. And I think this is another place where IDSA could play a role. I wanted to add a little bit on the disparities and what we see, you know, as a provider in a long COVID clinic, I'm working with long COVID clinics around the nation, our population that gets service is disproportionately white, considering the population in our states, no matter where where you go. And this speaks loudly about inequities of healthcare access. We know that the minority population has been hit harder by COVID, there's disproportionate amount of infection on brown and black people. And we know that there's a lot of people out there with long COVID that don't even know that they have long COVID that are suffering from serious impairments that don't make it to our long COVID clinics. So 
that is such an important piece to highlight and to seriously consider funding to support that effort. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Afotokun and Azola for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on COVID-19. I'm Amanda Jusik.